begin. This is a subject on depression. And uh, <laughs> before we go to prayer about that, it's kind of fascinating because I'm, I'm trying to finish a book on it. I was supposed to finish it over Christmas, but I had rotator cuff surgery on my shoulder. I had a cancerous mold taken off and I had to uh, dismiss one of the most loyal employees I ever had. I was so physically impaired and depressed I couldn't write it. And uh, <laughs> So let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here, for your love for us. And uh, Father, we just look to you to be the source of life and truth and, and acknowledge that, Father, and pray that you would just fill us with your grace and your mercy that what we have to say here would, uh, would be eternally true and uh, profitable. Uh, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we'll thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, <clears throat> I remember several years ago when I was a pastor uh, that we had a gal in our church named Marty. And Marty uh, was clinically depressed. I mean, that was her classification. And one day my wife went to Marty and said, Marty, why don't you go see Neil? And she said, Him? he's always up well isn't that who you should see then I mean if you were sick would you find the most snivelly emaciated wasted doctor in town and ask him what their health secret is I mean if, you know if you're down you should probably learn from what somebody's doing who is up right uh, but that's not the problem you know what the problem is is I see it she couldn't believe that somebody who's always up could understand and enter in and empathize with somebody who's always down. Now, there's some truth to that. I, I, I want to state that up front. Uh, and I've observed this about the church, that when I go to God, I receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I want to suggest that our churches are not always perceived as a house of mercy. Right. A local 12-step program, um, a secular counselor, a local bar may show more mercy than what we've seen in a lot of our churches. But I don't think they have any grace to help in time of need. I, I don't think they have an adequate answer to really help these people get out of that. A lot of emotion, a lot of empathy, a lot of uh, catharsis, but uh, is there an answer? Uh, and in most cases not. There's a lot of coping skills that you learn to somehow learn to live with your limitations. And But I, I think we got a lot more to offer than that. Well, how can I go to God, by the way? I mean, after all, would he really understand? I mean, if he wants a new wife, he can create one. Right? Is he ever depressed? No, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so he's never depressed. Could he understand? Ah, remember Jesus, folks? See, that's the context in Hebrews. We don't have a high priest who cannot identify with us. He's been tempted in every way. He's the man of sorrows. He suffered pain. Uh, you think you've got problems? He had the whole world against him. Yeah, you think you've yet, you know, shed to the point of death? You know, he was crucified. So, yeah, I think he understands. I, I, you know, I, we got the Psalms to somewhat prove that. You know, one of his prophets. And, and yet there's a stigma in our churches that... Uh, uh, we don't know how to respond to somebody who's got some kind of uh, mental problem. The physical ones we're pretty good at. You know, you broke your leg? Oh, I'll sign your cast. 
and uh, and uh, I'll help get some meals for you at your house. You know, and we we really are pretty good at responding to people who have physical problems, but emotional ones, well, they're depressed. Well, do you enjoy being around depressed people? No, they don't enjoy being around you either. That's the interesting thing about it. It's it's uh, they want to withdraw. See, that's part of their problem, and there's and. Uh, but we don't know how to respond. We can't sign their brain. And uh, uh, that's really true. I mean, it's, 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 we're, we're very deficient as a body of Christ to know how to respond to somebody who's suffering emotionally. And yet we are in the presence of a blues epidemic. I do not say that lightly. A study was done, oh, the end of the 70s, 80s, about 1980 or something like that there. And according to their study was is that depression has increased tenfold in the century of which we're living in. Uh, in the last 10 years, from 1985 to 95, I just read this in our local paper, the number of doctor visits in which patients receive prescriptions for mental problems rose from 32.7 million to 45.6 million. Visits in which depression was diagnosed rose from 11 million to 20.4 million, almost doubled in 10 years. Now, keep in mind, not everybody goes to a medical doctor to be treated for depression, but a, a doubled uh, medications just for depression, uh, you're talking a huge percentage of our population. Bipolar illnesses are estimated to be about 0.5 to 1% of our population. General depression, about 10%. Well, frankly, that's what? 10%? 226 million people who are presently depressed. And uh, a lot of them are going to your churches. Some of them are pastors. And yet, it's kind of fascinating to me that is an emotional problem it is seen as it's a downer. Well, if you were a good Christian, then surely you wouldn't be depressed. If you were doing right, you wouldn't be depressed. And I said, I'll tell you something. A person who's struggling with depression would have a lot more identification and sympathy from the prophets of the Bible than somebody who's got a mental problem of arrogancy or pride or self-sufficiency. Uh, you won't find a lot of companions amongst the saints in the Bible with that one, but you would find a lot. You know, Jeremiah was depressed a lot. So was David. Let me read David. Listen to this. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and gent and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes, even that is gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they despise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, May they not... Rejoice over me, 
uh, who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me, for I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me, and I confess my iniquity, I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. That's a depressed man. I mean, almost every sign of depression that we've identified today are evident in that song. Let me list the major uh, symptoms of depression. Uh, I don't think I have time to write this down, but let me just, just listen. Uh, for I, what I've done, we developed a scale, uh, and one or the other, and tried to devise some way of test to somewhat determine the severity of depression. But here are the things that really mark depression. I mean, this is pretty well uniformly perceived. Low energy, uh, difficulty to sleep, or 20%, that's all they can do, just sleep. Uh, withdrawal from activities, no desire for sex, uh, physical aches and pains, loss of appetite. So if you've got a sex problem, an overeating problem, just get depressed. And, uh, no, don't do that. Uh, obviously, the obvious one, emotionally, is just an intense sense of sadness. Just sad. I don't know how better to say it. Sad. Despairing. That's a little different. Uh, uh, despairing. Irritable. A low emotional tolerance. I just can't take it anymore. Uh, withdrawal. I don't just from people. Almost thinking that will help them. And tragically, their answer is just to... Uh, somehow get involved again, but no mental peace. Uh, consistently, you'll hear that. I just I have no mental peace. I can't turn off my thoughts, I, and they're all negative or scrambled. Uh, low sense of worth, um, pessimistic towards the future, um, perceive their circumstances as negative and threatening to them. I'm going down. Um, self-destructive uh, to the point where the thinking is is I, I would just as soon check out. The world would be better off. My family would be better off if I wasn't here. And I'd be better off too. Uh, let me uh, just read a little uh, thing I stuck in here from Leo Tolstoy, who was one of Russia's great philosophers and, and a Christian. He said, The thought of suicide came to me as naturally then as the thought of improving life had come to me before. This thought was such a temptation that I had to use cunning against myself in order not to go through it uh, with it too hastily. I did not want to be in a hurry, only because I wanted to use all my strength to untangle my thoughts. If I could not get them untangled, I told myself I could always go ahead with it. And there I was, a fortunate man, carrying a rope from my room where I was alone every night as I undressed so that I would not hang myself from the beam between the closets. And I quit going hunting with a gun so that I would not be able to easily tempted uh, to rid myself of life. I myself did not know what I wanted. I was afraid of life. I struggled to get rid of it, and yet I hoped for something from it. And this was happening to me at a time, from all indications, I should have been considered a completely happy man. This was when I was not yet 50 years old. I had a good, loving, and beloved wife, fine children, and a large estate that was growing and expanding with uneasy effort on my part. More than ever before, I was respected by friends and acquaintances, praised by strangers, and I could claim a certain renown without really deluding myself. In other words, his depression was not due to the circumstances of life at that time. His circumstances were incredibly favorable. This was not an external problem. This was an internal problem. Now, how do we respond to that? Here's a man who was seeking God, and he was. Um, and yet, uh, he found himself in this state of wanting to check out of life, of uh, Suicide thoughts are very common as we look at those issues. Now, the tension that we have in depression, obviously, is uh, 
when is this really truly a biological issue and when is it any, a, a spiritual, a mental, emotional issue? And I want to just kind of address that if I can for a moment. T.S. Eliot said, the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness. Knowledge of speech, but not of silence. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us further from God and nearer to the dust. That's kind of true. We're living in a time when uh, knowledge is exploding on us. I, I remember about 15 years ago, they said knowledge is doubling every five years. Now it's two and a half. And, and that's increasing so much more rapidly with the internet. I mean, what you have in your, you have more information in your, in your computer sitting on your desk through the internet than any library in the world ever had, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, it, what's accessible to us. I mean, the explosion of knowledge, but not wisdom. Professing ourselves to be wise, we probably have become fools. Uh, no more closer to think. I said, with all of this knowledge, with all this medication, why is depression then on the increase and not the decrease? If we think we have an answer, then where is the proof of that? Well, <clears throat> let's look at the biological aspects of this thing. I mean, First of all, wouldn't it make sense that God would create my inner man to match my outer man? I mean, obviously, the answer is yes. I mean, you know, of course, my outer man serves my inner man, if you would have that. Uh, and through my outer man, my physical person, I have five senses that relates to the world around me. I can taste, touch, smell, hear, feel, and see. Um, and uh, when I was created in the image of God, as we all were, and but when Adam fell, we lost a relationship with God. And, and at that moment, you know, not having the presence of God in our life, nor the knowledge of God's ways, we entered into this world, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we learned to live our lives independent of God. Now, we all did. We all learned differently. Because you were born. You made my little computer up here was programmed from the external world initially. I'm a grandpap right now. I, it's one of the greatest times of my life. You know, everything I ever heard about being a grandparent—it's true. It's. it's uh, do you know why grandparents get along so great with grandchildren? They have a common enemy. In uh, <clears throat> fortunately, that's not true either. But it was. Uh, uh, it is a great time of life for me. And I see my little Sammy, he come into this world, and, and uh, he's got a clean slate. <laughs> There's nothing programmed into his computer. I mean, uh, he doesn't have, he's getting now, he's three years old, he's got a vocabulary, and he's, and he's talking. But it was all because it was assimilated from the environment in which he raised. Guess which language he's speaking? French. No, he's not. It's English, of course. I mean, but... <clears throat> Because that's what he picked up from the environment. I mean, we didn't formally try to teach him that. He started to learn. And you know what his, his subject is before the predicate? It's really in interesting. Some languages of the world the other way around. Where did he learn that? He just assimilated it from the environment. Uh, and so 
you know, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And, you know, before I come to Christ, why? Simply because it got programmed from the world. Now, his world is, is a pretty good world. You know, his flesh doesn't look that rank right now. Because all of his uncles and aunts and cousins and moms and pops and grandparents, all love the Lord. Uh, he, is, he lives in almost a cocoon. He's going to face some hard reality out there someday. I mean, we protect very carefully what he watches on television. And uh, one night, you know, I mean, he, we saw just, I wouldn't perceive it as a particularly scary movie, but this spider was going after this person. And, oh, you know, Sammy was horrified. Well, he's going to, you know, fight a lot of spiders out in the real world. He hasn't seen them yet. Everybody he knows is good and kind and loves him. And, and it's so evident the way he lives. He walks down the mall. Just hide everybody. I, I can, they look at him, <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> then I see another kid. He's raised where he doesn't know who his dad is. Never saw his dad, and his mother has got multiple partners, and uh, you know, just an incredibly sick situation. Which one of those two children need Jesus the most? They both need Jesus exactly the same. Please don't ever miss that point. But one is going to have more difficulty than the other in, in terms of uh, the development of their mind and, uh, and the issues they're going to have to deal with later on in life, and uh, without question. Um, I'm saying this to you because when I come to Christ, uh, nobody pushed the clear button up here. Everything that got programmed into my memory is still there. They'll therefore no longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we all have to do that. Uh, and, and there can almost be a danger of having too much going for you at that time because you don't perceive your need of Christ as, as much as the other one does, even though you need to as much as the other one does. Are you with me here? That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, not because the money is a problem, but because he is self-sufficient. And, and they don't see their need for total dependence upon God. And um, it's hard to reach them for that reason. They, they don't perceive their need. They will someday and, and be there for them. So that's why funerals are a God's one of the great platform. They have an answer for everything in life. And it's just amazing. You sit there and do a funeral. And you can, first time I did that as a pastor, I walked, they walked by and went, Christian, non Christian, Christian. I mean, it was just that obvious to me. And it wasn't that they were crying, that wasn't the issue. It was just a discernment factor. I, I just, you could just see, oh my gosh, no hope. Hope, no hope, hope, no hope. And um, it's really amazing. Well, anyway, in the way God created us, the correlation of the outer man and the inner man is rather obvious. You have the brain and the mind. Now, there's something fundamentally different between the brain and the mind. The brain is meat. And when you die physically, it will return to dust. Uh, and you'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord, but you wouldn't be there mindless. The mind is really a, a function of the soul. Now, the parallel here is critically to understand because you have such a wonderful parallel between the hardware and the software in my computer analogy. You are handed a computer. Your computer continued to develop because it's organic. Um, about the age of 12, uh, formal operations began that a child at the age of 12, about that age, uh, can think as an adult. Uh, and uh, sometimes better. <laughs> Actually, your neurons start to die off by the millions. 
Now, don't let that frighten you too much because you got a hundred billion of them. So, uh, uh, but it really is true that formal operation begins. They can think uh, uh, as maturely as any adult can. They haven't learned as much yet, but they can think, have the same capacity to think. Sometimes maybe better. Do you know how you can tell somebody is 50 years old or older? Their VCR goes 12, 12, 12. <laughs> and if you want that picker program, ask your junior high friend to come over. He'll do it for you. And uh, they're actually the visual orientation that our young people are getting. I mean, if you're my age or older, it's hard to enter into that because they, they grew up with that. And for us, it's, it's harder to perceive that. Uh, it's just, you know, part of our learning process. Well, anyway, uh, that brain-mind combination. Now, see, what, where we're at in our culture is, is is that if you've got some kind of an emotional problem or mental problem, pretty much the assumption is it's a hardware problem. I don't think so. I think it's a software problem. I think it's a software problem. Actually, can you have a hardware problem? Oh, no question about that. Organic brain syndrome, Down syndrome, Alzheimer's disease are all clearly hardware problems. Now the question is, do you have a more miniature hardware problem? In other words, your serotonin, uh, your neurotransmitters. Uh, how do we explain that? Now let me just, a little brain chemistry here for a moment. 100 billion brain cells, neurons. That little, every little brain cell it's not like your whole mind is a computer. Almost every little cell is a computer. It's really fascinating. There are many, many dendrites input into it, and then you have one output through the axon, and then there's a gap between that and other computers called the snaps. Synapse, or however you say that. And uh, in every little brain cell that comes out, the mitochondria create neurotransmitters, and they fire across into other dendrites. Each little cell is, is connected to just a multitude of other cells. If you've got 100 billion neurons connected to six or so hundred other ones, do you realize the complexity of this thing? It's absolutely amazing uh, what exists right in there. Now, what they have been able to pretty well ascertain is that when a person is depressed, something has happened to the production of the neurotransmitters. And you've got two different issues here going on. One, bipolar is different from unipolar. Bipolar, manic depression, uh, which affects 0.5 to 1% of our population. The brain chemistry is different. Uh, you have sodium chloride ions that seem to increase in polarization when people are manic depressed. Uh, and they've been able to, lithium has been the drug of choice uh, for people who are typically bipolar depressed. Uh, if you're not a medical doctor, it's going to go over your head right now for the simple reason you can't prescribe it. They, they'd have to see a medical doctor to get a lithium, and that's um, and, uh, very carefully used in that regard, and you can misdiagnose that one and do some people some damage. Uh, but for some, it's maintained life for them almost. Uh, it is, there's a gal, I forget her name right now, but uh, she's an expert in this area. He or she herself is, has been manic depressive all of her life. She's written several books, and she's also equated how much the uh, people who have mania have been so incredibly artistic. And, and you start going back and looking in history how many people had bipolar depressions that were artists. 
uh, and musicians and authors and writers and highly creative during their periods of mania, mania. But but their lows are so low. All they want to do is is die, and, and just dark dark periods. Well, she had it, and uh, she's written some several good books on it, and quite an expert. And I've used some of her resources in doing that, but. Um, she also resisted taking lithium for a number of times, only added to her dilemma. Uh, but in, in one of her books, she also said that uh, uh, that was not enough for her. She needed somebody to help her unscramble her difficulty and thoughts. Now, in the development of antidepressants to, to help people's body chemistry, by the way, let's, let's settle this right now. You've got a physical body. That, that needs the doctor in the hospital. You have a spiritual part of yourself that needs the church. God created both, provided both for us, I believe. And there are problems that are clearly physical that, that need a physical answer for. And uh, so if somebody broke the leg, you know, I'll sign your cast. But please see the doctor, you know. Now, when you get to this issue of the brain, however, it gets a little more complex than that. Uh... Uh, as especially as a matter of which is establishing what. In other words, what is? It's very difficult to establish causation. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do I have a physical problem that originally originated as a spiritual or a mental problem, or do I have a mental problem that originated as a physical problem? In other words, am I depressed because my neurotransmitters went haywire when they first uh, started to develop antidepressants, MAOI inhibitors? Uh, were the first, and they've kind of fallen off the market a little bit. It was really try to uh, prevent some enzyme that would kill off the neurotransmitters. And then the tricyclic antidepressants came, and they were big. Uh, now you've got a lot more who are addressing uh, particular neurotransmitters, primarily serotonin, which you've heard a lot about. So neurotransmitters, one of at least 40 different neurotransmitters that you have. You don't have just one, but there's a variety of them. And uh, the thinking along that line is is anywhere from preser- preserving their shelf life to stimulating the production of them, etc. Now, I mean, you know, they this is known stuff. I'm you know, and I'm a novice at this thing. I've read on it, and so I'm not ignorant about it. But but much of the uh, Xantex and all that kind of stuff today is primarily there. Now, now contrast antidepressants from tranquilizers or antipsychotic medication, which in a simple term are downers. Uh, they're trying to, uh, to narcotize you because you're all stressed out. There is no pill that will cure anxiety, and doctors will tell you that. But you're in such a <clears throat> frazzled state right now that somehow or another i got to reduce that tension in your life, hopefully so that maybe you can think better and function better. They will tell you that that won't cure it, but but it will give you some stability in your life. But potentially antidepressants uh, are not downers. They're actually the opposite. They're to try to stimulate brain activity so that you can think more clearly again. And uh, and today, by and large, antidepressants are pretty safe. Uh, uh, you can find out what any psychiatrist has by going into Christian or in the Christian any secular bookstore. And get a pill book, and it will tell you, you know, what they're being prescribed for, what uh, uh, the dosage they would recommend, uh, what the side effects are, what the cross effects are. In other words, if you take this medication, don't take this or do this. And frankly, if you're in ministry helping people, you ought to have one of those books. Because if people come in and they're medicated, then take a look at what they're doing, and chances are you can work backwards and find out what the diagnosis is. Now, if you think for a moment 
that the best psychiatrists in this country have a precise way of measuring brain chemistry, you are wrong. And they will admit that. You know, it's a guessing game by and large. Here, try this. And you, they're looking at the symptoms and, and prescribing something that seems to help alleviate. Now, first of all, let's say something. Do antidepressants work? And in terms of at least uh, uh, masking or helping you with problem depression? Yes. No question about it. I mean, you'd be foolish to to argue against that. And uh, But is that the cause or is that the effect? Now, let's look what's going on with my mind here a little bit because my mind essentially is what programs the computer. It's the software. Uh, coming off of your brain and your spinal cord, your brain primarily is your central nervous system, is a peripheral nervous system. Now, don't make this complex. And you hang with me here. It's really quite simple. But coming off your central nervous system is a peripheral nervous system that has two very distinct channels. One is somatic, one is the autonomic. Somatic nervous system is that which regulates all your skeletal muscular movements. All of that which you have volitional control over. I'm moving my hands like this because my mind is telling me to do that. And I can tell it to stop. That obviously would correlate with your will. Looking at your soul here. Following me? Then you have an autonomic nervous system. Uh, so called because it's automatic. That's what regulates all of your glands. You don't say to your heart, beep, 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 or to your adrenal glands, adrenal, 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 or thyroid, thyroid, thyroid. I mean, uh, it just does that. And, uh, uh, and you have no volitional control over that. Not directly, you don't. Uh, it just is autonomic. That's why it's called that. Regulates all of your glands. And in the same way, you don't have volitional control over your emotions. Think you do? Try once. I've never liked that person, but for now I'm going to like them. I mean, there's no way that you can will yourself to do that. And the good news is, if we understood correctly, there's nowhere in Scripture requiring you to do that either. You, you're required by God to love one another, but that's really nothing to do with your emotions. That really is a the grace of God to love the unlovely, to do what is right with another person, whether you feel like it or not. The amazing part about it is, is if you do what is right, won't your countenance be raised? And it's amazing if, if you do the loving thing for that person, after a while you may find out that your emotions will follow suit. But if you're waiting to do something right until you feel like loving them, I said you'll never get there, folks. <laughs> it's the wrong order here. Now, let me just give you one illustration. Your adrenal glands are, are really a God-given thing to, to respond to the, uh, the pressures of life. Because when the pressures of life come, your adrenal glands secrete a cortisol-like hormone into your bloodstream, uh, which is your adrenal uh, glands, adrenaline, that's what it is, and um, uh, or epinephrine, this is what the other term for that is. But anyway, uh, that's where you get your fight-flight kind of response. Now, if stress persists too long, then stress for you becomes distress, your adrenal glands break down, they can't keep up with the system, and you probably will become sick. Now, I remember several years ago that Holmes and Rawl came out with a scale, uh, and they artificially put uh, uh, death of a spouse, which they saw as the most stressful thing that you could live through, and artificially named that 100. And then they looked at a whole variety of other stressful situations, moving, death of a child, uh, divorce, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and just put numbers on them as uh, stress. And their point was, was that if you, in a year's time, 
could add up all the stressful things that you went through and total them up and it came to 300, you were going to get sick. Now there's some truth to that, but I, I think it missed a major, major point. Why is it that two people can uh, perceive the same stressful situation and one flourish and the other one fall apart? Is it because one has superior adrenal glands? <laughs> now there is some difference, but that is not the major difference. No, the major difference was not the difference in the adrenal gland. It's right in here. Because we are not affected by life itself. We're affected by how we perceive life and how we interpret that data. Here's a stressful situation. Israelites over here, Philistines over here, and a little valley in between them. They said, well, we don't want to have a bloodbath here. Why don't we just send our champions out? No, the problem is they got a giant, you don't. And... Um, and so they're all stressed out over here, and I can understand that. And then, whoa, what are we going to do? You know, they got a giant. And uh, and David comes along and says, "How dare you taunt the armies of the living God?" Now here here's exactly the same situation for both of them. David saw the giant in relationship to God. The Israelites saw the giant in relationship to themselves and stressed out. Now, can faith in God? Uh, affect us like that? And the answer, of course it can. If you truly believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, that he will supply your needs, with God all things are possible, that don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You know, no matter what it looks like, oh man, tomorrow's really bad. I said, well, God's in charge of tomorrow. Well, I could die. Well, I'd be with the Lord. It's like asking somebody, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? I could die. I said, well, honestly, folks, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul says, for me to live as Christ, I gain. Right. Now, knowing that, you know, it's not a license to commit suicide, because God has required that we be a good steward of what he's entrusted us. But it is a freedom to live my life today. I'm afraid of death. I'm not looking forward to dying. That's a different deal. But, I'm, you know, uh, I'm not afraid of death. Uh, and, and all of us should be at that point in our life. And then you're free to go. And so, well, you know, like Joanne said, and, you know, bless her heart, because she doesn't want to suffer the loss. Uh, of losing me, but when I'm in the Bogota last fall, I got a five-page letter from the government saying, silly, saying, don't go. Because they were killing people down there. And I uh, said, God called me to go. What am I you know, worried about? And uh, now I have another staff down there. They got the same five letters, five-page letter. But, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, how do we take Bibles into that country? He said, uh, you know, we may never get out. I said, you don't have to get out, but you may have to go. And, uh, you know, that kind of faith, however, is almost foreign to a lot of our thinking today. I mean, we are really caught up in self-preservation instead of self-commitment. And, uh, you know, we kind of go back and look at what's Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. I said, well, he lost his first wife and kids and, you know, his poverty and stress. And, and so he said, oh, avoid that at all costs. Well, that's the substance of which uh, legends are made of, you know, and that kind of faith in Hebrews 11, sawn in half and, you know, meant about which the world isn't worthy. And that's kind of true. And I said, you know, it, that was the lie that Satan brought. You know, oh, save yourself at all costs, Peter said. Get behind me, Satan. You're putting your interest on man, it's not God's. You know, if, if God called me to go all over the world like I am this year and in the process of it, I died. Praise the Lord. He called me and, uh, and I died for a right cause. And um, so that's my life is in his hands. You know, I have no idea. But mine wasn't to question. Mine was to go. Go in all the world. Make disciples. Well, I'm sharing this point to say that that uh, 
What triggered the adrenaline into my bloodstream was not that external event. And the adrenaline that went into my bloodstream was not initiated by my adrenal glands. You follow my thinking here? What initiated it? It's right here. That is all true. This is your control center right in here. Now let me reduce that down just a little bit here. What, uh, uh, where does depression come from? Well, we all know, we should know pretty much by now, that, that by and large your emotions are a product of your thought life. Uh, if I can't direct my emotions, I surely can direct my thinking. And that's where you're going to see all your scripture given. Uh, uh, finally, brethren, whatever is true and right and lovely, think on those things. Uh, uh, meditate on, on, you know, on God. You know, meditation isn't the issue. It's the object of your meditation that's critical. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so you, you focus on, on what God said is true. And, um, and your emotions are essentially then are a product of your thought life. Since I can't directly control my emotions, I can directly control my thoughts. I can choose what I want to think. And uh, scripture says, choose the truth. Choose to believe the truth. Uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, is what he is saying. So here's the issue. A guy is depressed. Now, question is, let's go back to my computer illustration here for a moment. Which caused which? My computer, by and large, has no value without software. Are you aware of that? If that thing doesn't have a compiler in it, now, you know, when you bought your computer, if you just bought it without any software for it at all, uh, there is enough of a compiler in there for that computer to function as a computer. And when I came into this world, my computer had a compiler in it. Uh, there was a mind that was there, otherwise I couldn't sustain life. So if the computer is running my body, there had to be some kind of a program in there for life preservation. In other words, little children have a sucking instinct. And uh, they cry if they're hungry and the pain comes. And so, you know, there's something created by God, at least to sustain life, is already, it's like, that is probably no different than how an animal operates out of divine instinct. They can't reason like you and I can, but they have an instinct for survival that I think God has given. I think their, their brain came with a computer loaded with enough memory or, or enough software to survive. And we all have that survival instinct within us. A little child does. Uh, you know, cry. You know, give me food here and whatever else. And so we have that. But in terms of being able to rationally think and reason, it, it requires programming. And we got programmed from the world. Now we have a new computer program put in here. Uh, now, see, here's the question. If I take my computer and, and, it, and the screen comes on because they've, they've already put something on there. So there's a few things and instructions. Now, if I loaded that computer with a, uh, a new program, would anything change in the hardware? You'd have exactly the same number of components inside, wouldn't you? But the screen would look different, wouldn't it? Now, if you actually saw what happened here, even though every component in there, every transistor in there, every, you know, which are all so miniature now, it's unbelievable, but... Uh, would actually be the same, but the electron flow would be different. Wouldn't it? And you put a new program into your computer, you would have exactly the same number of brain cells. But if you actually read the screen, something would be different. Uh, your outcome would be different. And, and in order for that to happen, the path of neurotransmitters 
would have to change because every information coming out of your brain is coded through those neurotransmitters and those brain cells. And so if you've got a different product here, what I'm trying to do is establish some sense of cause and effect here. Uh, and it's exactly what Jesus did when, the, when they came to him and asked for healing. He said, do you believe that, uh, that you could be healed? And they said, Lord, we believe. He said, then be it done to you according to how you believe. Now, what's really interesting here is in that state, God did not bypass the process of this person choosing to believe and think. And I don't think, I think that's true of all life. You're saved by faith. You walk by faith. Uh, faithfulness is required of every steward. God doesn't bypass. God doesn't bypass your mind. He renews your mind. The devil will bypass it. Put a thought directly into your brain. God doesn't bypass it. I don't bypass it. That's why even in spiritual warfare, I never violate that person's mind. I never bypass their mind. You call up a demon, you bypass it. They're out of it. You're dialoguing with the demon. Why don't you have them dialogue with them? They're a child of God. They have the same authority you do. And I will never violate that person's mind. I'll never bypass them. I'll tell them, this is the control center. As long as you don't lose control here, we won't lose control. Bring it out in the light. Just share with me what's going on. And because I don't even want to deal with them. I want to deal with the person. That's their responsibility to submit to God and resist the devil. It's their responsibility to choose the truth. I can tell them what the truth is, but they got to choose it personally. If they don't choose it, be it done to them according to how they believe. And so what I'm really saying is, is that they say we want people to behave properly. Then don't miss the whole channel that I think God has given to us is that it comes by the renewing of my mind. And in renewing my mind, there is no way possible that it can bypass the avenue by which God affects the rest of my body. I want good behavior here, right? Well, that's going to come from the computer. Are you following me here? Not from my mind. That's going to have to come from the computer. The mind cannot direct my adrenal glands. The brain, the central nervous system has to do that. What directs the brain? The mind. It really is the inner man. Now you see the tension because you have the mind of Christ in the inner man, but you've got a whole external world over here, a fallen world, who wants you to do it its way. And so, you know, the flesh essentially is, is a part of that external world. That was all programmed externally, your flesh. That's the old nature, as the NIV puts it then, because... That's how you learn to live your life independent of God. And the flesh wages war against the spirit. The spirit wages war against the flesh. Where do you think the battleground is? It's the mind. Sure it is. I mean, that's just so evident all over Scripture. That's where the battleground is. Even in the poor guy in, in, uh, in Romans 7 who's seemingly stuck in, in my flesh, I want to do this, but in my spirit this. You know, and, and it just tells you right in Romans 7 where it's at. You know, it's in this battle for my mind. That's where it's at. That's that, that's where truth sets us free. And that's why you have to renew your mind. Because that's what directs the computer. Before, it was externally programmed to direct the computer according to the course of this world. Well, uh, now, here's the big question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Uh... Did my neurotransmitters stop functioning properly and therefore I became depressed? Or did my thinking cause my neurotransmitter to function a certain way? Did a lie cause a neurological problem? Now, you know what really is interesting here? There's some fascinating research from the secular world 
where they took some rats, created a sense of hopelessness, programmed into their minds that, uh, a sense of hopelessness, which they, in their term they used depression, which is what depression essentially is, is hopelessness. And they, they married, measured through beta, beta receptors, they were able to measure their brain chemistry, and they found out creating a sense of hopelessness changed brain chemistry. And when they took away the hopelessness and were able to measure that the brain chemistry changed. That's a secular study. And uh, it comes back to us in a sense that can truth set us free. Now, here's the tension, see. By and large, if you look at all the evidence, and most of this Christians have pretty well bought into, uh, here's, the, here's the issue. Severe depression is biochemical. Moderate depression can be resolved through therapy. And then they describe the symptoms of severe depression, and I'm saying, man, I've seen that day in and, and day out. Uh, let me just give you a, a quote here. Uh, here's a secular guy, Martin uh, Seligman. He said, I have spent the last 20 years trying to learn what causes depression. Here's what I think. Bipolar depression, manic depression, is an illness of the body, biological in origin, containable by drugs. Some unipolar depression, too, are partly biological, partly the fiercest one, particularly the fiercest ones. This is very generally uh, perceived as, uh, as normative here. Some unipolar depression is inherited. If one of the of two identical twins is depressed, the other is somewhat more likely to be depressed than if they had been fraternal twins. This kind of unipolar depression can often be contained with drugs, although not nearly as successful as bipolar depression can be, and its symptoms can often be relieved by electroconvulsive therapy. But inherited unipolar depressions are in the minority. This raises the question of where the great number of depressions making up the epidemic in this country come from. I ask myself if human beings have undergone physical change over the century that have made them more vulnerable to depression. Probably not. It is very doubtful that our brain chemistry or our genes have changed radically over the last two generations. So a tenfold increase in depression is not likely to be explained on biological grounds. I would suspect that the epidemic depression is so similar to all of us is best viewed as psychological. My guess is that most depression starts with problems in living and with specific ways of thinking about these problems. That's a secular report. Now, I, I essentially, I agree with that. The only part I disagree with is, is that I don't think I would uniformly say that the severe depression is, um, is uh, purely biological and treatment only by medication. And the gal that I told you about earlier, who, uh, who herself was bipolar depressed, she said, when I finally did submit to lithium, I also found I had to go in to, uh, to other people to help me scramble, unscramble my thinking. <clears throat> Let me just give you a testimony to respond to somebody who is clearly severely depressed and, and, and what his treatment was. He said, I'm writing in regards to your seminar in Minnesota. The day it was to start, I was to be admitted to a hospital for the fifth time for manic depression. I've been dealing with this for almost two years. We had gone to several doctors and tried about every drug they could think of. I also had shock treatments. I attempted suicide twice, unable to work any longer. I spent most of my days downstairs wishing I were dead or planning my next attempt. Also, it was a good place to protect myself from people in the world around me. You see all the symptoms here of isolation, <clears throat> withdrawal, uh, you know, sadness, obviously, suicidal, Unable to work any longer, I spent most of my days downstairs wishing I was dead, planning my next attempt. Also, it was a good place to protect myself from people and the world around me. 
had a history of self-abuse. I had spent 30 odd years in jail or prisons. I was a drug addict and alcoholic. I've been in drug and alcohol treatment 28 times. I became a Christian several years ago, but was always lived a defeated life. Now I was going back to the hospital to try a new medication or more shock treatments. My wife and friends convinced me your seminar would be of more value. The hospital was concerned because they believed I needed medical help. As the four days of the conference progressed, my head started to clear up. The word of God was ministering to me even though I was confused and in pain. I told one of your staff that I was in my 11th hour. He set up an appointment with me. The session lasted seven hours. They didn't leave one stone uncovered. The session was going great until I came to bitterness and unforgiveness. The three things that motivated my life were low self-esteem, anger, and bitterness, which were the result of being molested by a priest and suffering for many years of physical and verbal abuse in my childhood. I can honestly say I forgave them. God moved right in, lifting my depression. My eyes were now open to God's truth. I felt lighter than ever before. I did go to the hospital, but after two days, they said I didn't need to be there. My doctor said I was a different person. They had never seen a person change so fast. They said, whatever you're doing, don't stop. I've been growing in the Lord daily. There's so much before Christ and after Christ that I could go on forever. Now, should a Christian then take medication? Well, first of all, you know, of course. I mean, for your body, you know. Taking a pill to cure your body is really commendable, folks. Taking a pill to cure your soul is deplorable. Deplorable. Uh, what bothers me about our whole emphasis on medication, think what's happened in our lifetime. I would estimate, I just asked a doctor this week what he would, I, he, he, and he agreed. But I would estimate 85% of our people who are going to doctors don't need to go there. Right. They go in for every little sniff or cough or wheeze. Do you know what I did when I got a sniff or waff? I drank chicken soup and, uh, and mom put a hot pack on me and I went to bed. When I got well, I went back to school. And, uh, you know, we've got a society who won't tolerate pain. They say pain is an enemy. I would submit to you, read a book, Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants by Philip Yancey. It's one of the best books I've read in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, those symptoms are telling you you're not living right or something. You know, and, and uh, but I'm just saying we we have, a, a, you know, no pain, no gain, folks. I mean, after a while, you got the pain is the enemy. I said, no, it's not, boy. It, it's a gift from God. If you didn't feel pain, you'd be hopeless, massless cars. Your emotions are telling you the same thing. God gave you those so-called negative emotions. What they're really telling you is, is that you're thinking wrong uh, about life. It isn't the events of life that determine, it's your perception of them. We don't understand suffering. Thank you, Lord, that you consider us worthy to suffer shame for your name. Oh, suffering's intolerable, you're doing something wrong, must be sinning. Well, read Job, he wasn't sinning. That's not true. You, you know, and... Uh, and somehow or another, I think we've missed something here. I mean, we're, we're, we're creating a whole society of wimps uh, who, who can't overcome anything. Um, the second world is almost doing better than we are in that regard. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've got a concern here in the sense of saying, you know, just like, your, like pain in your body, the ability to feel pain is a signal back to your brain to do something differently. Same way. So let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Let's say... You ate every bit of that dessert last night and drank too much coffee and you had acid indigestion. Now, should you take uh, something for your stomach to relieve the pain? Well, frankly, I would if you want to get to sleep or go throw up or do something, you know. it's a, uh, Now, there are a lot of people who live with bottles of Pepto-Bismol in their house. Actually, my dad does. <laughs> you know, he, he likes a dessert almost after every meal. And... Uh, 
And uh, and his cholesterol, he's 83 years old, is still only 180. Figure that one out. That's biological. That, that's inherited, folks. But anyway, uh, I think what a person should do, if you're struggling all the time with heartburn, I think your body is telling you something. Stop eating that junk! It's killing you. Isn't that true? Well, I like eating that junk, but I'm going to cover the symptom by having, you know, antiacids all over the house. I think you're learning to live wrong, folks. you got a nutritional problem right now. Your body's telling you this isn't doing you any good, and you ought to listen to it. People are depressed. Oh, man, give me a pill, cover that depression. I think you're thinking wrong. I think you're living wrong. I think you've responded to, the, to that loss wrong. I think you uh, don't understand suffering correctly. All kinds of issues that need to be asked about that stage of the game. Something's causing that depression. Now, I need to caution you along this line. People are depressed. They have problems over periods of time. It may do lasting, irreparable damage uh, to your neurological system. And you're probably going to need medication the rest of your life. Uh, I've known people like that, who I think that if they clean the house as best they can, they feel great. But boy, you know, they've got actually now a physical problem that requires essentially some kind of medication to help them get through that. And if you've got a peptic ulcer, but a lot of that stuff has been telling us for a long, long time. But if you've lived that long for so long, that just correcting now your eating habits and your thinking uh, will give you a great deal of freedom with God, but you're going to have to probably live with the consequences, which is a body that's been destroyed by drugs or whatever else. Are, are you with me on this one? I, I said, you know, I said, when Christians say it's a lack of faith, um, and if you're taking any kind of medication, I think that is incredibly naive. I mean, uh, is it a lack of faith, you know, uh, that you don't have to eat anymore? Uh, you, you know, that you uh, God is your food and he'll give you manna from heaven? And No, he's provided you crops to eat. He's provided you St. John's wort. You know, I think there's a lot of herbs out there that, that God probably has created that would be a very good thing for you. You know, I swack one guy, how did they perpetuate the notion of lithium? Well, they found a whole society down in Texas that was relatively free of manic depressants. And then you know what they really discovered? There was a trace element of lithium in the drinking water. And so there's a lot of stuff they find somewhat accidentally like that, that, uh, well, who created lithium? God did. Who created St. John's wort? Who created the other warts? The devil did. Anyway, it was uh, <laughs> bad living, whatever else. It's... Uh, now, caution on this thing. If you just walk out of here and say, hey, listen, you're depressed, sweetheart, because you're thinking wrong, let me suggest first mercy. No judgments, no criticism, because they're not even going to come see you because you're always up. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I can't overstate that. They, they, uh, they, they're looking for somebody who can understand, can empathize with them. They're going through an emotional hell right now. I don't know how better to say it, folks. I, I've never been depressed. But my wife was for 15 months, and I, I learned so much about myself during that time. It's painful, almost tell it with you. Um, and, uh, and much of what I am today, and learning to relate to hurting people, came out of, out of actually her crisis. But she was so severely depressed, Joanna was ready to check out. And, uh, and I had to learn over that time, no pious platitudes. And, uh, uh, but to enter into that experience with her in a way I never had before, and so I just, you know, I I just can't overstate that part uh, of being able to give the grace to help in time of need has to be preceded by mercy. No judgments, no criticisms, 
just uh, sit with them for a while. They enter into their experience. So don't become like and don't become depressed because they need you. They need a way out of this thing. And if you have the grace to help them tell you need, you're right there. That that depression is probably very simplistically, I could say this, is rooted in a lie. Uh, in in the, the vast, vast majority of cases. It, uh, it could be genetic. Uh, and I think it can predispose you to certain strengths and weaknesses without question. It's somewhat to do with temperament, by the way. You have a gift of mercy, you're going to struggle more with depression than the, than the prophet. He makes everybody else struggle with depression. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's really true. I've seen people who are just so sensitive spiritually, they just grieve a lot. And, uh, and they're not depressed, they're grieving, they're hurting for other people. And, and they are more prone to depression because of probably their own giftedness and their temperament. And there are just some people who are pessimistic and others optimistic. I'm an optimist. I'm also a minority. It took me a while to figure that one out. You know, I go in and I see change is good. 95% of the population sees change is bad. I had to find that out about myself. It was really interesting. Oh, I was just a stress carrier. Go around changing everything, you know, and everybody was upset with me. And uh, and if I wanted to be a change agent, I had to realize that most people prefer status quo. And uh, so, you know, I had to learn that. It took me time to learn that too, because I said, "Hey, we can do that better." Why? <laughs> well, because we can do it better. I like the way we're doing it. Why? <laughs> I was like, "What's wrong with you, anyhow?" I said, uh, "You see, what what I learned in the process of that was, I said." people need stability in their life. They just desperately need it because the world is flopping all over the place out there and they come to church and you're changing the program every Sunday on them. That's unsettling to them. To me it was exciting. To them it was unsettling. Oh, we're going to try something new. And uh, I mean, that's the problem with new wineskins, you see. So give them an eternal anchor. Uh, they need to be firmly rooted in Christ. See, they needed to enter in to an eternal relationship with the changeless God. That's where their security lies in. But long-established practice and time-honored faith get blended together in people's minds, and you start advocating a different practice, they think you're fooling with their faith. You are not. And all the, the old people who get upset with new styles of music and everything else, and I'd say most of the reason is, is simply because they are not truly secure in Christ. Because if they were, they would, they would, they would be the ones who would suspend their freedom for the weaker brother. They would be the ones who would accommodate. But usually, they end up showing themselves to be the weaker brother. And I'll tell you why: because they're they're rooted more in their traditions and practices than they are in the eternal uh, person of God. And I see in a mature saint who's eternally connected, they can go over clothing. What you wear to church ain't a big deal because they've been to Africa. They wear loincloths over there, uh, and they beat on drums. For music, they don't have organs, uh, you know, and that's what the Lord says: you worship in spirit and truth, not in form and function. But boy, you got to be secure in Christ to get to that point. And, and much of when we change something and culture changes around us, the old generation gets upset, and I, and I just honestly believe it's because they're really not firmly rooted in Christ. Their Christianity is tied in traditions, and a lot of it, to be honest with you, is is uh, is understandable. Because there were certain songs that I sang when I became a Christian that were very meaningful to me. They didn't mean anything to my son. And I'm all moved. Why are you moved, Dad? Well, I found Christ when I heard that song. And he said, I didn't. 
you know. I remember Carl was sitting beside me on the chair when he was about six years old one time, and we were singing Gator songs, something beautiful, something good. And Carl said, all my confusion be understood. <laughs> I said, right. <laughs> it's true. Uh, let me just show you how much time do we have here? Got a little more? <clears throat> let me show you what wrong thinking could do. Psalm 13. <clears throat> Here's another depressed psalm, but he gets out of it. Uh, psalm 13. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now you stop right here. This guy is depressed, folks. Uh, circumstances of life have overwhelmed him, and, and he's depressed. Now, why is he depressed? Because what he believes about God isn't true. If God is your hope, I could, all i got to do to get you depressed as a Christian is to take away your hope in God, your concept of God. God doesn't love me. You know, he isn't here. God's here, folks. He's omnipresent. That's a lie. It's not true. He's here right now. And, and God loves you. He demonstrated his own love for you. He loves you more than you could ever fully comprehend. Uh, you know, I understand this about Scripture. And most people don't because they maybe get upset with this and they say, oh, God's forgotten him. Scripture gives you a truth and record, not always in content. In other words, it records things that Satan said. That's truth and record. But what he said wasn't true. You with me on this one? It's amazing how people don't understand the simple concept about Scripture. This is truth and record. This is what he said. This is what he felt. This is what he believed. What he believed was wrong. How can an omniscient God forget you, much less for a moment or forever? Are you with me? But that's what he believes. And so what's he doing? He's taking counsel in his soul all day long. Any answers there? No answers there, folks. That's what happens when you start directing your thoughts inwardly like that, become self-absorbed. Uh, withdraw over someplace, sit in the corner and, be, and get in a pity party, folks, you're depressed. There are no answers there and you're actually taking your way, yourself away from the answer. Now, David doesn't stay there, never does in these songs, because he turns to God and he says, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes. Isn't that great? You know, search me, O God. Try my way. See if there's any hurtful way within me. You know, it's like what Ed has been trying to tell us. Go to God himself and have him enlighten your life. Show me where I'm lying, folks, because somewhere along this line, I have believed a lie, and that's the reason I feel that way. And so he goes to God, and then he says, and uh, enlighten my sleep, uh, or I will sleep the sleep of death. I mean, here he's thinking, it's almost suicidal, he's going to die, see? He's, and, uh, and my enemies will say I've overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But, here's the transition. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, that's actually a future concept here. And he's expressing a sense of hope. Even though I don't feel like it now, I believe someday I will. So you see the hope coming back here? And, uh, and he said, uh, I will sing. Now, that's what you can do. Did you know that Martin Luther struggled with depression almost all of his life? And, uh, and he had kind of a tenfold answer. One of them was singing. There's something about singing in music that brings to a distracted mind a sense of order. Not just the words, the physics of sound itself. There's a harmony built in to, to in creation that God has given us, where singing is a part of that. Uh, when David played the harp, he didn't sing, play the harp. The evil spirit departed from Saul. When Elisha said, uh, you know, who are you, king? You know, 
And he said, call me a minstrel. When the minstrel played, he prophesied. I, you know, I thought it was staging kind of when I, when I went to this one church, when I just a new person in ministry, and I started to pray the pastoral prayer, and the organist started to play. I said, what are you doing that for, you know? You know, I've come to realize that there's, there's, there's tremendous value in that, uh, of that music, just the harmony of music, the physics of sound, hidden eardrum sends a signal to your brain with that sense of harmony. See, music itself, without any words, any lyrics at all, can get you to want to march, want to sleep, want to jump, and you can just almost think songs that are coming to mind right now because, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, that are, can be sensual, can be moody, uh, and, and we, sometimes we choose music to help us. I, I remember years ago, you know, I'm kind of a Gaither fan, and I get to speak at the gathering this year. I'm really excited about that. And um, But anyway, I'm... Uh, uh, I remember putting on, was it Alleluia? I think it was a tape that he had years ago. Boy, if I ever felt like life was overbearing, I would just kind of lay down in the living room and put on that tape. And boy, I tell you what, 99% of the time, I would get up ready to go again. It, it had a way of bringing order back into a, a Martin that seemed to have lost it for a period of time. And that, that, was, that, that affects your brain. And, and uh, you know, they've even shown that music itself can, uh, can affect cows that are milking. Have you heard this? It's true, you know, because there's a physical aspect of sound. There's also some sound because of discordant sounds as well as as excessive amplification that can make you a nervous wreck. <laughs> you know, that, that's true, and it's just the physics of sound. God created that. It, you know, moral and moral probably isn't the issue. It's, you know, it's just the same way. I said, it would it be immoral then to scratch your finger on a blackboard? No, it's an accident, but stop it. You know, because my, you know, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. And, uh, well, anyway, I, I got a, we did a conference up in uh, uh, Grand Rapids last year about this time. And uh, dear friends of our ministry, Judith and uh, Stephen King, his name's Stephen King. <laughs> He's a Christian, was a Christian missionary doctor and got a residency in psychiatry and, and his wife. And, and they're reading my manuscript right now. And, get good feedback. I never published anything without testing it in a variety of corners. But anyway, she did some unofficial research. I thought this is really intriguing. She gave a pretest to people who came in and, and asked for an appointment. Now, by and large, these aren't people that got through it. We estimate when you come to one of our conferences, 85% of the people are going to get through this thing on their own at the end of the week because the Lord's a wonderful counselor. The other 15% need somebody to help them get through it. They just can't do it by themselves. And um, so that's the one she gave this survey. Now, they're presenting problems never identified. I mean, whether it was lust or rape or incest or I didn't, you know, it wasn't identified, which makes this test even more in interesting because three months later she did a post test. And I won't give all the figures here, but 48%, there was, they registered a 48% improvement on depression. Now that's the whole group lumped together. What I'm really saying is probably half of them weren't even depressed when they came, which makes even the figures even much more amazing. 46% had an improvement in anxiety. 70% had an improvement in tormenting thoughts and voices. 46% had an improvement in uncontrolled habits. 55% had an improvement in inner conflicts and distress. Now, you, what's intriguing about that is, <clears throat> if you show those results to the secular world and say, what kind of treatment would you think it would take to bring that kind of an improvement? And then get a response back from them and say, by the way, that was done in one counseling session by lay people. 
That's rather amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. And uh, uh, to see what would happen if a person actually resolved the conflicts. Now, I would say, see, what skews the test here is, is that if several of the sample didn't come in with, with depression, that, that would show that somebody came in depressed, uh, probably left without it. And uh, man, that's been our experience uh, in many, many areas. So it's kind of fascinating when you look at this whole area of depression. Now, please don't walk out of here and say that there isn't potentially a physical problem here. Uh, there is. And, uh, and, and thank God for medical doctors and whatever else. But they're all telling us that most of their problems originate are psychosomatic anyhow. Would there be a physical benefit for getting radically right with God? Oh, sure. For instance, I'm 92 years old. (laughs) That's not true. Let me uh, just close with a testimony. I've asked, this gal is here, this this husband's wife is here. Are you here from, uh, had the depression they gave me for this book? Uh, Let me just close. This is a good story. Um, She wrote on the backside. There. Daniel, just wanted to let you know your ministry has changed my life. This is from him now. He said, I was uh, raised in a good family and I feel I had a good childhood. I accepted Christ when I was 20, married a great Christian lady when I was 22. We had three children. Life was really good. I worked in the same type of business that my father and grandfather owned. When I was 31, I decided to start my own business. The first two years went really well. Life seemed good. The business I'm in is uh, excavating and in the north part of the country, there isn't much you can do in the winter. In the late winter of that second season, my mother was diagnosed with ALS. I didn't know anything about this uh, disorder other than there was no cure. Last spring was one of the wettest ever, which made it very hard to do my work. We began to get behind in my bills, and this started to make me depressed. I will use, uh, used to bringing in, I was used to being in control, and now it seemed like everything I did made the problems worse. I also lived 800 miles from my family, and they played on my guilt that I couldn't help with my mom. That year, we ended up really behind in our bills, and then if to add insult to injury, at least I felt, my wife had a miscarriage. It seemed like everything was out of control. The depression got worse, and I thought of suicide a lot. The next season, we started so far behind that I knew that there was no way I could get caught up, and we didn't. My mom continued to get worse, and I knew that when she died, she was not going to hear because she was not a Christian going to heaven. In October 1st, my dad led my mom and himself to Christ. Finally, something good happened. Then on October 8th, my mom died. She was in heaven, but it was still gone from us. When even the bill collectors called, uh, whenever bill collector called, my thought was to just kill myself. There seemed to be no hope. I was used to fixing it myself, and now I couldn't fix it. Finally, I decided to just end it all and started to go get a gun. On the way down the steps, I, I was stopped and had two questions come to my mind. What one, uh, one was... One which is more important, which is more important, having your bills paid uh, by the insurance money or your children to have their father. One which is, which is more important, your bills being paid or your wife to have her husband. That was in February, and I now I know that I didn't want to kill myself, but those thoughts wouldn't go away. I met with one of my pastors regularly. It was good, but I still couldn't see any hope. Finally, in August, I met with a friend that had gone to a Freedom in Christ seminary. He sat down with me, showed me in Ephesians uh, 1, 8-21, that if I have... Christ in my heart. I have the power that raised Christ from the dead in me. He asked me if I thought there was anything that power couldn't do. Of course not. He then explained in Romans 7 how the battle was in my mind and how to win that battle was by turning every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Uh, from that moment on, I have had not had a problem with depression or suicide. I finally found the hope 
that I had been looking for. A few weeks later, this friend moved away, so I didn't get to learn all the things I wanted to hear about freedom in Christ. So I bought Victory with the Dodgers and Bondage Breaker and helping others find freedom in Christ. And I read them on the way out to stand in the gap at D.C. The transformation has been incredible. Well, my, my wife tells me she has a new husband. I've seen the change in my wife and the children and myself. Uh, when uh, we re read God's word, it comes alive to me now. Now when I listen to the pastor's sermon, I frequently cry because words touch my very soul. He says, thank you. Well, that's what freedom brings for all of us. I said, it's not a question of, of uh, just telling the truth. That truth has to enter into our hearts. And we have to appropriate that truth in a way that truly does set us free. I think we have an answer for depression. I think the, the, the physical cause is very minor, uh, to be honest with you. I think we have to always consider that. Uh, and I think you're going to have people who've lived so long a certain way that it's done lasting damage to their body and will require medication for the rest of their life to deal with that. I still think that that's minor. Uh, I think that uh, the major causation here, even by secular research, is probably uh, how we think the way we perceive life. Now you have an unbelievable potential Christian answer for our people, the vast majority of them, that is. And we've seen those mood elevations shift dramatically in helping people resolve their personal and their spiritual conflicts. Christ is the answer. Truth will set your people free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you, Father, for the word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet. For the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of truth, who will lead us into all truth. Father, may we hide that wonderful treasure in our hearts so we wouldn't sin against you. But also so we could be free to be the person you've created us to be. God, we want to have your mercy and your grace that we could be a whole person like you. So just make us like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Good. Thank you. I think it's positive. You think it's positive? Yeah. <laughs>